Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're putting more and more of our lives in the cloud, and more and more of our transactions are electronic, which is convenient and fast, but is it safe? How secure is all that stuff in the cloud or moving around electronically, like your credit card information or your bank records? Malware, in fact, might have your computer linked into fraudulent activity right now without your knowledge. How vulnerable are we to surveillance by government or anyone else? The USU Huntsman School of Business, Partners in Business, Information Technology Conference is featuring a panel discussion on security. That'll be happening tomorrow. We've got three of those experts with us today. Chad Harrington is CEO of Triptio, and he joins us on the telephone. Welcome to the program. Morning. Good morning. Uh, it's good to, good to have you with us. Um, I'll alert our uh, other guests to put their uh, headphones on. I neglected to do that so you could uh, hear uh, Mr. Harrington. Uh, David Thaw, Visiting Assistant Professor of Law, University of Connecticut, is with us. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. And Branson Matheson, Systems and Security Architect with SAN Security, is with us. Thanks. Hey, thank you. Uh, so uh, that panel discussion, very uh, valuable, I think, uh, tomorrow, and we're going to have the advantage here at UPR with, uh, uh, of answering some questions. And your questions are definitely welcome. We'd love to uh, take this in the direction that you would like. Here's the number to join us, 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. You can join us by email to upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com, or you can join us at uh, Utah Public Radio on Facebook and on Twitter. Uh, so uh, let me turn uh, first to uh, to Chad Harrington. Um, the, what are some of the trends you see emerging? The, uh, the the threats that you you could make us more worried before we reassure some people. What are what are some of the trends? <laughs> well, uh, interestingly, obviously security has been an issue as long as we've had computers. But uh, over the last few years, we've seen a real rise in the use of malware and other. Uh, computer hacking techniques for profit. So there's been a, a pretty significant rise in the number of uh, organized crime types that are involved in these sorts of things and people who are out there making a profit. You know, back in in the 60s, 70s, and even 80s, uh, you know, computers that were uh, being compromised, it was mainly people that were doing it for fun to show off, uh, you know, hacker types that were saying, oh, you know, hey, I can show that I can break into this computer. Uh, you probably all remember the the uh, movie War Games, or maybe some of your younger listeners don't, but uh, those of us who are a little older do. And it was just kind of people exploring and, uh, you know, again, maybe showing off. However, in the last oh, uh, five to maybe ten years, we've seen a real rise in the profit aspect. And that's somewhat driven by people who are doing more commerce online. All of us are doing more online. We're doing more with our credit cards online. And there's money to be made there. Uh, and then there's also, of course, money to be made from uh, advertising and uh, other sorts of, of activities online. And so the more nefarious parts of society are using malware and other ways to compromise your computer to uh, do what we call click fraud, which is uh, you know getting, uh, making it look like your computer is clicking on a bunch of ads or uh, other sorts of activities. And obviously, we're all familiar with uh, credit card compromise as well. But there's a, a large amount of money to be made in compromising computers. And so it's no longer just for fun or you know to show off. It's now become a, a for-profit enterprise. Yeah, at war games. That's uh, I hadn't thought about that for a while. But that's uh, that took it kind of to the, the, the most macro level, which was war and peace, nuclear war. Uh, which, which is right. which is interesting, and and uh, I guess what we worry about most today is 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 money. 
fraud. Yeah, and you know there there are uh, there's another angle. Maybe some of the other guests will talk more about that. But there's there's another angle which we haven't seen as much, but it's certainly something that I worry about, which is uh, critical infrastructure. So uh, I think we should probably talk more about uh, profit and and money because that's relevant to all of us. But just since you mentioned it with uh, with the war games uh, issue, you know we have power plants that are connected to the internet. We have. Uh, you know, all sorts of government institutions. We have traffic lights that are connected to the Internet. Uh, if those critical infrastructure items are compromised, really bad things could start to happen. So, you know, there's uh, in, in our digital world where we connect everything that we do to a computer and those computers are almost universally connected to the Internet, uh, it's a little bit scary when you think about what if someone can control those computers. Yeah, yeah, it, it definitely is scary. Um I want to, as we introduce uh, Ransom Matheson, I want to do this with with the movie theme. We are talking before we went out the air. You were watching The Matrix, you say, with, with the eye of an IT guy and, and uh, how well it's held up from that point of view. So let me ask you first, what uh, how, how well did it hold up? Um, well, The Matrix was an interesting uh, paradigm in that it was a world within a world within a world. And even the movies, movies like War Games and Hackers start to expose a little bit of that in that the Internet is kind of its own little entity. And so what we were looking at when we were kind of giving our critical review of it last night was the idea that has that premise held up, has the idea that there are there is a whole separate idea of a world. And the, the reason I go down that path a little bit is that people, I think, don't understand the internet as a whole, just like people in the matrix didn't understand they were in the matrix. And so what what people are starting to discover is that the internet is not what they expect it to be, right? We are, we had this, this idea of the internet as something pretty simple that you can go out and surf Facebook and these kinds of things. And what they're finding is that it's it's every bit as dangerous a place to be as a, a, you know, a back alley in New York at 2 a.m. So we were kind of looking at it from that paradigm to say, did, is this starting to expose those ideas? Is this starting to does it does it give that? And I, I don't think it did. I think at the time it was um, it was a lot more of a kind of a fantasy role um, kind of uh, TV show, and then, you know we were having fun riffing on the graphics and some of the other things that were in it. But the ideas of a world within a world, I think, were were prescient at the time. And as as we've come into this new world that we're in now, where we have a world within the world with the internet, if you ask kids and, and you know, their world is Facebook or their world is Snapchat or their world is Twitter, they don't see the internet as the internet anymore. Hmm. Interesting. I wonder if we could, uh, I'd like to take a specific example uh, that's been in the news and, uh, and look at the security aspects of this. That's Target. So starting with Branson Matheson. Um, it, Tell us the details of the case we may have forgotten, and then then we'll get into discussing this. So interesting thing about Target. Um, I do a lot with social engineering, and this was um, – what happened with Target is that they compromised the cash registers to pull information off of credit cards and PIN numbers as they were being typed in and fed in and out of the cash registers. That's the simplistic way to say it. The interesting way is how they got into that environment, and it was through a contractor that worked for Target and – they used publicly available information out on the internet to start to build a profile of Target before they even attempted the first thing against them. And a lot of the information we would consider innocuous. Documents on how to be a good contractor, documents on how to file um, uh, POs, documents on how to do safety checks, those kinds of things. But inside those documents, and what a lot of people don't realize is, is, is this idea of metadata. And so when you're typing a document and you backspace across things, 
what you backspaced across is still inside that document. It's just not visible anymore. And similarly, there are other things that attach to your computer that are in that meta information. And so what happened is the hackers went in and found all this information and were able to build a profile of what the inside of the network looked like. And from there, they had a couple of different malware pieces that they were able to convince somebody to click on through social engineering. And the malware pieces, because of that information, had some predeterministic ideas about what to do next, where to pivot. And, and when we say pivot, what happens is a hacker gets into a single machine that's inside your network using a technique, and then they pivot and start going after other machines in your network and continue to build their empire, if you will. So that was the interesting part from my aspect is that social engineering was the key that really got them in but also that all this public information, people people are not cognizant of what information they're really giving out when they give it out. So, and that's yeah, that is a concern. I I always take the option of uh, you know I don't want my information stored at your site. I'll, you know, let's just do a one-time transaction. I don't even know if that you know protects me. I would say that you uh, it's a good idea. I mean, being cognizant of your information. I talk about this a lot. You. you you know, we joke about people who wear tinfoil hats, right? We call them skeptics. We call them crazy. We call them lots of things. But what we're finding out is that people who are the opposite of that, people that are free with their information, are becoming more of a risk. They, are, they have more of a risk when they use the Internet and when they do things because it, the information's out there. Um, when we evaluate companies, um, we evaluate their Internet presence as much as we evaluate the, the vulnerabilities they may have because that Internet presence has the information that you can use in a reconnaissance to then determine what to do next. And, and it's all part and partial, right? Security is not a one thing. It's a layered it's a layered process. And so finding those layers and then and helping people remove the risk from those layers as much as possible is, is a good thing. That being said, anything you ever put on the Internet will never go away. Mm -hmm. It will exist into eternity. Yeah. So be careful. Yeah. Let's turn to David Thought. I'm, I'm wondering from the point of view of you come to this from the point of view of IT, computer expert and law professor, right? That's correct. Um, wh whose responsibility is this? Is it, uh, is it principally my responsibility to make sure my information is safe? Is it the company? Is it the third-party con contractor? Is it the credit card company? It, where, where, where's the responsibility lie? It's most definitely a shared responsibility. It can't be, the burden can't be placed on any one party because each party is situated differently to be able to leverage both their knowledge and the position that they're in within the transaction to better protect against attacks better protect against mistakes. So the consumer knows what information they're going to share and what information they shouldn't freely share. The data custodian, which in most cases is a commercial merchant of some kind, knows how they're sharing it and increasingly importantly, with whom they're sharing it for transactional purposes. So to go back to the target example, it was in fact a large part of the compromise was the relationship that they had with a vendor, which may or may not have been vetted properly. We don't know that yet, but what we do know for certain is that whether or not it was vetted properly, they didn't follow up with the audits to make sure that whatever vetting was done was actually then being followed through by the vendor. And this is a fact of modern business. We have a highly interconnected society where businesses depend on one another for specialty things all the way from accounting to highly specific IT transactions. And in order to be able to do that, you have to be able to rely on one another. And that brings in the third party that we might care about, which is to what extent should regulatory agencies impose burdens to say, 
you must meet these basic standards if you are going to become the custodian, one who accepts consumer data. Why would we want that? Well, this isn't a consumers versus business debate. This is an everyone versus cybercriminals debate. And there's a lot of research out there showing that the industries, primarily healthcare and finance, which have been subject to research, to this type of broader regulation, in the end, it's a win for them on the whole. It costs them a little bit more up front, but they're then able to better rely upon those that they transact business with, not just their customers, but their business partners, in a way that saves them a lot more money down the road. Do, do you think we need more regulation? I think we need more flexible regulation. One of the best parts of HIPAA, which has a security rule, and many people, many of the listeners will have heard of HIPAA because they have to sign forms and go to their doctor's office. Well, there's also a security rule that governs how all medical providers and related information processors, such as insurance companies, have to handle that data. Those parties are four times better at preventing data breaches than everybody else except finance. Mm. And what's unique about HIPAA is it's flexible. The requirements for your family physician who's one doctor and two nurses are scaled fundamentally different and appropriate for that size than are those for Pfizer or Massachusetts General Hospital or any of these very, very large Blue Cross Blue Shield. This has worked incredibly well. And regulators requiring comprehensive information security plans, which achieve the goals I, I discussed earlier of allowing this reliance as businesses work with one another, can look to that model and find ways not to overly burden business, but in fact to benefit business by allowing them to trust those with whom they transact. And I imagine there's variability. Um, I don't, well, first of all, who, who does regulate this? Um, and it seems like, to, to really get to the source of this, it would have to be a worldwide regulator, which we're probably not going to get to. Worldwide is something that we're still thinking about, at least in terms of the United States' ability, which is, for the moment, sufficiently broad because international organizations are still subject to the U.S. jurisdiction. The sector-specific regulators health and human services for health care, the agencies that can enforce Gramm-Leach-Pliley, the Department of the Treasury, the Federal Trade Commission for finance, have worked pretty well. The Federal Trade Commission also has a broader unfair and deceptive trade practices authority, and there have been several bills that have been proposed in Congress, in the Federal Congress, over the past five to six years to give them more broad information security regulatory authority. They've developed the expertise, whether or not we would have picked them as the regulator 10 years ago is another story, but for better or worse, they've developed the, the expertise to do this far more so, I think, than any other agency in a broad spectrum as opposed to an industry-specific approach. And I think that's who we would need to look to. Very difficult for the states to do it on their own for two reasons. One, the state governments just don't have the resources. It's not expensive to write rules. It, it is a little expensive, but it's incredibly expensive to credibly enforce them. And that's been one of the biggest problems, is that in the healthcare space, it took a massive investment of enforcement resources before anyone was willing to take seriously the HIPAA security rule, which has been around since the early 2000s. Hmm. We're talking uh, security, internet security. 
And I think we're all concerned. It provides uh, this new electronic world, increasingly electronic world, provides a lot of convenience. But at what cost? And uh, perhaps the cost of security. Uh, we're uh, delving into these issues uh, with the help of uh, some experts who are going to appear tomorrow on a panel on security. And uh, they are Chad Harrington, CEO of Triptio, David Thaw, visiting assistant professor of law, University of Connecticut, and Branson Matheson, systems and security architect with SAN Security. We're asking you what your concerns are, what your questions are. The uh, place to reach us is by email to upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. You can join us on the phone at uh, 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or uh, we're on uh, Facebook and Twitter, Utah Public Radio. Uh, before we go to break, uh, Chad Harrington, uh, anything you'd like to say uh, following up on our discussion about uh, specifically about Target? Well, Target's interesting because I think targets probably in every major metropolitan area in the country, and it's it's something that we're very familiar with. It's not an obscure uh, case. Unfortunately, there are tons of compromises that are happening that are less well-publicized and less well-known, but pretty much, you know, I'm guessing everyone on this uh, in the, the audience of this uh, call is probably shopped as a target. So it's one of those cases that got a lot of press. It, and it's an interesting illustration of how our credit card system really works, which is the credit cards themselves are, are you know, things we have in our wallets are actually pretty insecure. If someone has the number of your credit card and, and maybe a PIN number, which might be on the back, which doesn't make it a whole lot more secure, but if they have those one or two things, they can charge things. Now, uh, in the security world, there are much more secure ways to do credit cards. Uh, in Europe, for example, most of the cards have a chip embedded in them that make it such that you can't just have the number, you have to actually have the card uh, because that card has a, a little electronic chip in there that makes sure that the, the card is present. Um, so then you might wonder, so why hasn't that caught on in the U.S. Uh, if, if it's a more secure way to do things? And it just sort of highlights how our system works. And the way that uh, credit card system works in the U.S. is it's based not so much on preventing fraud, but on detecting fraud. And the credit card companies, and again, most of your listeners have probably had a call or uh, a message from their credit card company at some point that said, hey, we've locked your card because uh, there was some suspicious transaction on it. And that's really how the system works, that the credit card companies run lots of algorithms and pattern matching techniques to figure out, you know, uh, Chad has never uh, shopped in Ohio and all of a sudden, you know, there was a charge for $300 in Ohio. That looks suspicious. Let's call him and see what's going on. And then if there is fraud, the credit card companies just eat that fraud. So they, uh, they take the, the financial hit. Uh, if you dispute a charge and it's not something that you did, then, you know, 99% of the time you're going to get off fine and and the credit card company will have to, to eat that. So I just bring it up because it's an interesting uh, discussion point that we could make electronic transactions more secure, but it would be harder for the consumers to do it. It would cause usability problems. Uh, and so credit card companies, at least in the U.S., have sort of opted to instead rely on detection rather than prevention. And that's really true of most security techniques, the more you do to prevent things, the harder it gets to use them. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll uh, talk more about this. Uh, interesting uh, detection versus prevention. I guess ideally you'd have both. Um, and uh, the, this European uh, chip and pin uh, technology, 
which uh, seems to be much more secure. We'll talk about that, and uh, I'll, I'll ask, uh, what security should I install on my personal computer? That's a problem I've actually encountered right now since I have a new computer, and I, I, I'm scratching my head. And this arms war between, uh, you know, detection of, uh, of, of hacking and, and the like, um, and, uh, and companies like McAfee and, uh, and Symantec, who's winning that? We'll talk more about that following break. The last wolf in Yellowstone National Park was killed in 1926. For any visitor that had come to Yellowstone from 1926 to 1995, when wolves were brought back, there's one thing that they missed out on. There would have been an unnatural silence here. Now you can hear the wolves again. I'm Steve Kerwood, and that's next time on Living on Earth from PRI. Tune in Wednesday morning at 10 a.m. on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Green Valley Spa and Resort in St. George, offering a poetry salon the fourth Thursday of every month, featuring booked poets, singers, and songwriters. Details at greenvalleyspa.com. Thanks for listening to Access Utah Today. I'm Tom Williams. We have a panel of experts on Internet security. This is something that uh, we are, I think, all concerned about. If we're not, uh, we probably should be concerned about it. Uh, recent uh, items in the news, like the uh, break-in at uh, Target. We're talking about uh, perhaps your information, uh, your financial information. And there are others, of course. And there's always that threat. How do we keep ourselves safe? And uh, what is the, the best trade-off? I think it's it's always is a trade-off. The advantages, convenience of this new world versus the security risks. We'll get to talking a little later in the hour if we have time about the the, the macro level here, the national security uh, issues, and uh, surveillance, privacy. Uh, we'd like to take this in the direction that you would like to take it. If you have a question on this topic, the number to reach us is 1-800-826-1495. 1-800-826-1495. Or you can reach us by email to upraxis at gmail.com. Upraxis at gmail.com. We're on Twitter and Facebook as well, where you could, could comment. Let's uh, continue this discussion with our panelists. By the way, l- let me reintroduce them. Chad Harrington is on the telephone. He's CEO of Triptio. David Thaw visiting assistant professor of law, University of Connecticut, and Branson Matheson Systems and Security Architect with SAN Security. Each of these gentlemen has a uh, long and impressive uh, background in uh, IT and the security issues. They can answer your questions. Um, l- let's continue this discussion about uh, our credit cards. And uh, we've heard from uh, Chad Herring that in Europe uh, for quite some time, it's been a chip and a pin technology, much more secure. Uh, Branson Matheson, you're telling me this is coming to, to the United States. Yeah, so um, the it looks like in October 2015, that's going to be the standard for new cards as they roll out. And uh, Target's already, based on what happened to them, is already accelerating their program to move to this. Um, uh, David just told me his all of his cards have already been rotated to chip and pin. Um, I don't have any new cards myself here recently, but um, that, that seems to be the trend is everybody's going to this two-factor type authentication scheme versus the um, meaning that something you have and something you know so that um, it's a lot harder to um, break into and use your account information and money. Um, whereas a credit card is one thing you know, right? It's that credit card number and, and like you said, maybe the pin on the back. So it should be here about October 2015. Everybody's cards should get in, get rotated out. 
Interesting. So I haven't seen any of these. Uh, David Thaw just handed me a couple of his credit cards. That's a security breach right there. <laughs> uh, but uh, th- this is very interesting. So this has a chip in it. Uh, so not only, uh, if you only knew the number, th- that wouldn't help a criminal. You'd have to actually have the, the card. Well, under the U.S. system, you still can process electronic transactions over the phone, over the Internet, with sometimes even as little as just the number and the expiration date. That will eventually go away as well, but there's a lot of merchant resistance to it, some for good reasons because some businesses just can't transact business at all without incurring massive additional costs. But for point-of-sale transactions, that's when you take your credit card, you go up to a machine, and you swipe it. And that's exactly what happened in the target breach. The chip will make a substantial difference. The number, the expiration date, and even the three-digit code on the back will no longer be sufficient to perform a transaction. And the absence of the chip will be an immediate red flag. Hmm. Interesting. But this would not work on, uh, say, if I'm transacting something online. I don't believe so. I'm not sure how they're going to solve that problem. There'd be no way for them to authenticate. Not yet. There's been some discussion of connecting peripheral devices to computers, similar to how the military uses CAC devices, common access cards, and requiring that you actually insert your card into this device, which would then authenticate to your computer and send the information over the Internet. Some of the pushback has been that in a non-secured environment like that, it's relatively easy to start thinking about replicating and creating security holes whereby it will simply replay the transaction it pl- played from last time using malware or something like that that's been installed on your machine and, and bypass the, the security of it. So that hasn't gained as much traction, and it also requires people to put devices on their home computers. Mm, yeah, that would be an, an expense. Kind of, yeah, go ahead. I, was, I would say that uh, it kind of highlights that trade-off again of when you increase security, it usually has some sort of usability impact. and Yeah. Uh, you know, several of us, uh, I try not to go in stores very much. <laughs> so I, I uh, transact online a lot more than I do in person with a, with a point-of-sale device. I don't know if that's uh, true across the whole United States, but more and more we're doing more things online. And you, in security, you, you always have these issues where, you know, you can kind of close one hole, and chip and pin is, is a much better technology, and it will certainly help. But to really make it, uh, change the way we do business with credit cards. It would require, as as uh, the other guests were talking about, some sort of device that you connect to your computer, and then you know who pays for that, and are there vulnerabilities, etc. So, security is never a uh, a black and white thing. It's always some sort of a continuum. Whereas you move toward a more secure world, you incur more costs, you incur more uh, usability concerns, and that's part of why uh, you know we are where we are. Yeah, boy, I, I sure, and I, I don't think I'm alone. I sure wish it was black and white. I, I sure wish I could do something, and, and I'd I'd pay some money, you know. I'd, I'd uh, I don't know how much, just to make sure, you know, say, okay, check the box, I'm now secure. But you're telling me that's it's not going to be the case. It would be nice, uh, but uh, there, you know, it's, it's sort of like your home. If you just, if we step out of the digital world for a moment, you know, how how secure is your home? Is it? Is it black and white secure? Probably not. You know, is it is it Fort Knox secure? Probably not. <clears throat> but most of us still have some sort of locks on our doors, and you know, maybe a home security system. Uh, so you know, the, the usually where we decide to draw the line on that continuum of secure to insecure is when the economics start to matter. You know, the the cost of 
making my home like Fort Knox well exceeds the value of my home. So no. I, I don't yeah. go that far down the road. And the cost of doing online transactions, when when that uh, cost, when the cost of securing that gets too high, we usually draw the line there. So economics tend to be the deciding factor in where we draw that line. Yeah, I, I guess it's you do have to slide that slider where where you feel comfortable. Uh, Branson Matheson, I, I was as, as we were having this previous discussion just a, a couple of minutes ago. I was thinking about a commercial that comes on television, at least the channels that I watch, uh, where you have services now where you can make your home, your entire home, electronically uh, accessible. Yes. And, and so remotely, you can lock the door and turn off and on the water. And uh, and I guess I've put myself more on the toward the Fort Knox area. I've already tipped my hat on that. But I, all through that uh, the commercial... I'm not thinking of the convenience of this. I'm thinking, what if somebody hacked into that thing and they can control my entire house? Absolutely. Um, but that's kind of where the direction our world is going. We're, we're going to have to increasingly think about these issues, aren't we? Absolutely. So um, my moniker has always been security is one over convenience. There, there's usually a, a trade-off there, and it's usually very direct. Um, and as you know, we were talking about it the other day, if, if you'd asked somebody 15 years ago if they would be carrying around a GPS in their pocket that everybody would know where they are at all the times, they would have said, no, that's a privacy violation. If you would have told them that they would have had a device in their pocket that somebody could take over at any point and listen in on their conversations, um, they said, no, I'd never do that. But everybody today, nine, you know, nine, I would say six out of 10 have a modern phone that can do that. And they've been used for good and bad. Um, I know that, um, for instance, cars have OnStar, which is gives the company access to you and in, in an emergency, right? You can hit the button or if you need a direction or stuff. And it's been used in good things. It was used to um, implicate um, mafia members by turning on the microphone without turning on the light. And they heard they were able to record what was going on in the car. So there's that aspect of it, too. But the reverse is, is how do you how do you deal with the privacy implications of having all these devices out there? As far as the security point goes, I think um, home devices tend to be there's there's two points to that. One is what protecting what it does normally and then protecting what you do with it. So protecting your home device, you really want to make sure you have a, a good router firewall in between you and the Internet. Um, it, there's a, an online graph that says if you take an unpatched machine and you plug it into the Internet without a router, it'll get hacked in six minutes. Um, and that's an average. And it's usually a lot faster than that because they're always scanning for them. You should always keep your machine patched. You should always apply updates where you can absolutely do it. You should run antivirus. I mean, you should always do these. There's, there's this idea of something called an advanced persistent threat that says if somebody wants to get in, they're going to get in. You're, you're not going to stop them. But what you want to do is raise the bar as high as possible so that you have the least amount of risk associated with it. With your actions, it that's really about, again, not not calling wackos wackos and start thinking a little bit with that tinfoil hat about where, where am I sending this information? What am I doing with it? Um, I had a friend of mine that told me that she celebrated one year off of, off of Google. She had no Google Maps. She had no any of this. She celebrated a whole year with no Google, and she announced it on Facebook. And the irony <laughs> was, was mm. quite palpable in the room when that was said. So you really have to think about both aspects, I think, when you're, when you're talking about security when you're dealing with the Internet as a one-on-one. Hmm. Uh, let me uh, get you up to speed if you've just joined the program. We're talking about Internet security. It's a, it's a problem we're all having to face. And there are trade-offs. You can't. Uh, we've we've learned here so far in the program. I've learned I can't uh, can't turn my home into Fort Knox, though I'd like to. Uh, I guess I could, but the cost would be too high, and I'm going to have to uh, go somewhere in that sliding scale. 
and uh, so so that is uh, something we have to all be concerned about and where where are we comfortable and and what can we do those are some questions that uh, we're asking here on the on the panel chad harrington ceo of triptio joins us on the phone david thaw visiting assistant professor of law university of connecticut is with us and branson matheson systems and security architect with sans security we have a caller tim in cedar city tim uh, glad you called go ahead with your question or comment uh, yes, I was wondering, I presume that the credit cards with the chip would be compatible with the European system. And I also understand that when people travel now to Europe, they can't use their credit cards because uh, they don't have the chip in them. Um, so there's two questions. One, what should people traveling to Europe do now if they want to uh, use a credit card? And then is the chip system in this country going to be compatible with that in Europe. I'm not sure who, who wants to handle that. You, uh, David Thaw. So it's an excellent question. And as the credit card companies and debit card companies start to roll out the chip and pin question, the chip and pin system, you'll actually get the answer to your question in the literature that comes with it. So the answer is yes, they're compatible. And if you have a chip and pin card that's already been provided to you, then you will be able to take that card with you to Europe. I'm sure they will still charge you foreign currency transaction fees, but you'll be able to use it. There may still be some terminals in Europe that accept the magnetic swipe, although for the most part that's pretty much gone away in the European Union countries. So your older cards without the chip will not work. And it is the plan of the credit card companies, as I understand it, to try and roll over as many of their cards before the 2015 deadline as possible. As we mentioned earlier on the show, pretty much all of my cards have been rolled over, at least my credit cards, not yet my debit cards, though I imagine that's coming because they're the same banks. Um, I imagine for most callers and most banks, they'd be quite happy to engage in early rollovers. It's usually the resistance of consumers having to go through the process of changing their card, making the phone calls, swapping everything out. That makes them reluctant to push it out all in one batch all at once because it overwhelms their customer service. Hmm. Does that answer your question, Tim? I think so, yeah. I, yeah. I presume then if I were going to go to Europe, Tomorrow I'd go to my bank and get them to give me a new card with a chip in it, or would they be capable of doing that? M- many banks would. I, you know, I don't know what bank you have, and I'm not going to ask on live radio, but certainly it is worth a phone call to the customer service department to see if they're willing to switch you over now ahead of the deadline. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Thanks, Tim. Appreciate that. Uh, and I suppose for any of us, that would be uh, worth a call if you if you want to be an early adapter, early adopter of this. Could call your bank. Uh, the number is 1-800-826-1495. That's the toll-free number that Tim used from Cedar City, 1-800-826-1495. You can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com, or join us on uh, Facebook or Twitter. Uh, and we're talking about Internet security with Chad Harrington, David Thaw, and Branson Matheson. Let me ask uh, my question uh, to, to Chad Harrington. Um, just got a new computer. And uh, previously, I've had uh, Microsoft Security Essentials. And uh, perhaps I shouldn't be giving this over the air. But anyway, I'll, I'll use myself as a guinea pig. Um, my understanding is that's, that's going to be phased out. They're not going to be updating that for, uh, for future uh, editions uh, of, of their, uh, their programming, their platforms. 
Uh, so I, I went with one of the other, uh, you know, prominent companies. I know, I think, uh, Chad Harrington, you've worked for McAfee and, and Semantic, perhaps. What, uh, what's, your, what's your best advice? Well, I, I, and I, I should disclose, of course, that I've uh, made a career out of uh, selling such software, so you have to take all, you know, my, my advice with a grain of salt there. But I would say, ultimately, with a new computer, you need some sort of antivirus protection. And, and to call it antivirus protection maybe is using an old term, but that's what we typically know it all as. They, all these products from McAfee, Symantec, AVG, uh, Kaspersky, you know, you name the vendor, they've all evolved a long ways from just protecting you against viruses. They have personal firewalls in them. They have uh, spam protection. They have all sorts of other features, which are all very valuable. Uh, that being said, I would say there's not a whole lot of differentiation between them. Uh, and again, as, as one who's uh, built and sold these products, uh, they're all quite good as long as you stick with one of the major brands. Uh, you know, I, I can't get on the air and say that uh, one is better than the other. There might be a small difference here or there, but they're all quite good, and they all uh, uh, do a good job. But what I would say, uh, you know, assuming you're sticking with one of the a handful of major brands, uh, you know, something that you would buy at a, a Best Buy or a, a Circuit City or something like that. You're gonna you're gonna be pretty pretty well okay. Uh, I would be careful if you got anything in your inbox that said, hey, you know, buy my antivirus thing. It's the best and something you've never heard of. Uh, those are often scams and they can uh, cause a lot of trouble. So stick to one of the major brands. You'll probably be okay. But more importantly, I, I think there are just some pragmatic non-technological steps that anyone uh, should take to, to really increase their their computer security profile. Uh, and one was previously mentioned, I guess it's somewhat technological, but, uh, you know, have a router connected to your, uh, to your Internet connection at your home. Now, most of us do this today because we like Wi-Fi. We like the, the freedom of being able to roam around our house, and uh, we have Wi-Fi routers, and those have uh, kind of a, at least a minimal layer of security built in. So just repeating that one for, for everyone's benefit, uh, definitely make sure you're using a router. Um, also, password security. This is, this is not really a technical thing, but it's something that is really important. It's not something you can buy your way out of by spending money with McAfee or Symantec. It's really important that you use strong passwords and that you use different passwords. And I think most people now are, are getting used to using stronger passwords because more and more sites are requiring stronger passwords. But it's important that you use different passwords. So just think about if, uh, if you, one of your online accounts is compromised, which happens pretty much every day, there are major uh, security breaches where passwords are compromised. If the only place that that password gets you into is the retailer that was compromised, it's a very small uh, problem for you. However, if you reuse the same password across many, many sites, all of a sudden an attacker who has your password has almost the keys to the kingdom. And uh, we've just seen this over years that people tend to use the same password across many sites. And so that's something that you really have to be careful uh, to do and, and not use the same password, which means you're probably going to have to write them down somewhere. Uh, I use a secure password manager that fills in the password for me, depending on what site I'm on. Uh, and, you know, there are some risks uh, associated with that as well. But uh, in general, you need to be using different passwords for different sites no matter how you do that. And that's another simple thing that you can do to increase your, your security. 
We do have a caller. Uh, David thought I wanted to respond. Uh, yeah, just briefly. I, I think Chad's comments highlight some of the challenges that we face in authentication broadly. So there's a desire to have different passwords across different sites and have complex passwords. Research has shown that users just simply can't remember that, and they end up going to the password reset function too many times. What's the danger of the password reset function? Trust me, it's a heck of a lot easier for you to figure out where I went to high school and what my high school mascot was or what was my first car from public records the street I grew up on, et cetera, et cetera, then you, for, for you to ever guess what random combination of letters and numbers I use for my password. So what do we do? Well, there's a lot of research underway. Writing them all down has its own set of problems. There's the joke about the yellow sticky note on the monitor with the password to that computer on it. And the suggestion that I offer is it comes back to what we talked about before, this is a risk mitigation exercise. We have to decide what is the acceptable risk threshold. How often do you reuse your password if you can remember, say, eight passwords and rotate through them across sites? That's better than using one. It's not as good as different for every site, but it's better than always having to go to the password reset function if attackers know that and can compromise that in a way. Some of you may remember during the presidential election campaign, Sarah Palin's uh, email account was compromised not through the password, but through the password reset function. Mm. Oh, this is all making me uh, worried again. I guess I and I I'm one of those that I, I uh, you know I, I I go back and forth on this strong password, but then I forget. You know I I guess I'm typical of, of a lot of people. Let's go to Madeline in uh, Lyman. Is it Madeline? Yes, that's right. L- Lyman, Wyoming. No, Lyman, Utah. Lyman, Utah. Where is Lyman? Uh, it's very rural. <laughs> it's between. <laughs> Capitol Reef and Fish Lake. Okay, okay. I think I've, I think I've been past Lyman. Anyway, uh, I diverted you there. Go ahead with your question. That's just fine. Um, I was one of the ones that used Target in that period of time, and I called my credit card whole, uh, company, and they just told me to change my number, get a whole new card, and go from there. But I'm concerned about, I do a lot of shopping on the Internet because we are so rural. I, you know, we have to travel a long way just to find a Walmart. And uh, it's, really, it's really concerning to me because we buy most everything over the Internet. Uh, so uh, yeah, as we pointed out, the, this, uh, this chip technology is not necessarily going to going to protect a person like uh, Madeline uh, Branson Matheson. I wonder if you have a response for Madeline's concerns. Well, so <laughs> one, I think, and David can comment to this as well. I believe one of the reasons the U.S. has held back on doing this transition is that it's cheaper to write off um, problems than it is to. Uh, install the infrastructure and deal with the costs of customer service and hardware and so forth and so on. So, um, and he alluded to the um, dis, uh, dis, disagreement, I guess is a good word, between merchants and uh, and banking entities as far as this implementation. Because merchants are making, uh, companies especially like Amazon and eBay and some of these others are making just tons of money off the idea that you can do all this over the internet. And if we have this transition, it's going to impact their bottom line fairly strongly in the short and maybe even in the long because they're going to also have to implement hardware and software to make sure it works. So I would say in the short term, 
you you certainly wouldn't have anything to worry about. And I would also argue that because these vendors are making so much money, they're going to go way out of their way to make sure that the transition from your perspective is as smooth as it can be. You shouldn't see a huge change in your processes. You might see something small, like when they in, they introduced the pin on the back of the cards, you know, what, five, 10 years ago to, to help mitigate security. That was a very small change and it was very well thought out. If you go to the gas station now and you put in your credit card, a lot of times it'll ask you for your zip code. That's also a, a second piece of information. They're, they're trying to build these things to make it very, very easy for you to do. So I would say that your expectation should be that when they actually do do this transition starting around in October, well, now to October, um, you will see a small change in how you do it, but you shouldn't see uh, a, a, such a distinct change that you won't be able to do what you're doing now. You, you will be able to get your, your shipments out to you uh, without too much trouble, I would think. Hmm. Uh, so, Madeline, you, you say you were affected by this, this target uh, breach. Did, what did they tell you? Did, did they reassure you that you're, you're going to be okay? Uh, yes, and, they, and then they, they offered the Experian coverage for a year. And, uh, and of course, then they said, don't ever give your numbers over, you know, your Social Security numbers over the Internet. And then when I got the Experian application, of course, what did they ask me? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but for my, yeah, my that's, Social Security that's, that's numbers, problematic. I thought, okay, now what am I supposed to do here? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, uh, David Thaw, I wonder, what would your suggestion be? She's, her... her information was involved in that breach what uh, how to do damage control here i get asked this question a lot particularly on media it's a very common question for consumers and the unfortunate part of the answer is that madeline you've you've pretty much done most of what you can do changing over the card that was affected that you used in the store which was compromised and signing up for the free credit monitoring that's provided. That also usually, and I believe in the Target case, if I remember correctly, because I, I signed up for it as well to see what the what features it provided, it does put the credit alerts and something the credit company the credit reporting agencies, consumer reporting agencies credit bureaus, as they're colloquially known, have stages of alerts that can be placed on your file, and it places one of the early stages of those alerts. So they know not to issue credit without making sure and and to send you information if they do new issue new credit. If you're extremely concerned, you can go all the way to locking your credit file. And they each of the three has a slightly different name for it. Sometimes they call it a credit freeze. In that circumstance, no new account can be opened in your name without a phone call to your phone number of record first before the account issues. It's an extremely arduous process. Most consumers don't do it. I've only ever done it once. And Again, it's a decision you have to make. We've been talking a lot about the trade-offs in security between convenience and increased security. I've enjoyed your I, very much. Oh, uh, thank you, Madeline. Appreciate that. Thank you. Thanks for calling. And I'll, I'll, I'll have to get out to, to Lyman one of these days. Uh, we just have a couple of minutes left. I want to get in this uh, email. Uh, this is from Mario in St. George. He says, if most European customers have chips in their cards, how are they now handling online transactions? I wonder who wants to, to handle that. Did anybody have that knowledge? How are they doing it now in, in Europe? So we're, we're saying that this, the chip will help mostly at on-site locations, but online, how is that uh, 
How's that helping now? I don't know, David Todd, do you have an idea of that? Yeah, so it depends on where the vendor is because the location of the vendor is going to determine what regulations apply. If you are a European co- consumer purchasing from a U.S. vendor, then you only have to provide what information U.S. vendors require. If you're purchasing from a European vendor, there may be a slightly higher threshold. As far as I know, there is not a chip reader in every consumer's home in Europe. So I have not seen widespread use of the chip technology itself for online transactions. And they may be headed in that direction. I'm not quite sure what the politics of Europe are for consumers. Um, But it's primarily the jurisdiction where the... Uh, vendor is that the consumer is going to look at. I believe uh, Branson has uh, Branson and they'll have to do it in 20 seconds. Real right. fast. So I did a quick look up and it appears that they are supporting credit card sales over the internet as they normally would and chip and pin is only really used when you're in point of sale situations. Okay. Well, this is a big subject. We uh, barely scratched the surface. So uh, you'll have to go to the conference tomorrow to, to really uh, get into some more of these issues. And uh, we may well treat this again on Access Utah. Uh, we've uh, been talking with Chad Harrington, CEO of Triptio, David Thaw, Visiting Assistant Professor of Law, University of Connecticut, Branson Maths and Systems and Security Architect with SAN Security. They're all involved in the Information Technology Conference at Utah State University tomorrow. Thank you to all of you gentlemen. And uh, to uh, for producers uh, Katie Swain and uh, Bennett Purser, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, offering breakfast Monday through Saturday, beginning at 7 a.m., featuring quiche, granola with layers of yogurt and fruit, or ciabatta fried egg bun with bacon, avocado, and provolone. Welcome to Wild About Utah, a partnership of the Stokes Nature Center, the Bridgerland Audubon Society, and Utah Public Radio. Hi, I'm Holly Strand of the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University. Deserts are dry by definition, receiving an average of less than 10 inches of precipitation a year. In Utah's cold west desert, the skimpy amount of moisture slakes the thirst of sagebrush, saltbush, or greasewood, but not much else. However, just like the Sahara, the West Desert has its oases. In certain lowland valleys, you'll find complexes of pools and marshes. There isn't enough rain to form these freshwater sanctuaries. The water comes from giant underground aquifers. Underneath the West Desert, the aquifer system acts as a storehouse for runoff from the surrounding mountains. As rainwater or snowmelt enters or recharges the aquifer system, water pressure can build up in some areas. This pressure moves water through cracks and tunnels within the aquifer, and sometimes this water flows out naturally in the form of a spring. These desert springs and the resulting pools and marshes permit concentrations of animals and plants not possible under normal desert conditions. You'll find sedges, rushes, cattails, and many other wetland plants. Both migratory and year-round birds congregate here. There are even a couple of frog species. But most remarkable are the desert spring residents that have survived from the days when the West Desert formed the floor of giant Lake Bonneville. Surveys have revealed a number of relict snails and other mollusks that still persist from that time. 
Some, like the Black Canyon Perg, exist at a single spring complex only. They are found nowhere else on Earth. Certain native fish were also left high and dry by Lake Bonneville's recession. The least chub is a good example. Now the sole member of its genus, this three-inch-long survivor is an unassuming but attractive little minnow. It is olive-colored on top and sports a gold strip on its steel-blue sides. It swims in dense but orderly schools in either flowing or still water. It can withstand both temperature variations and high salinity. The ability to tolerate different physical conditions has undoubtedly helped the least chub survive the post-Lake Bonneville millennium. Even so, the least chub was hanging on in only six different locations until Utah's Division of Wildlife Resources reintroduced it to several more sites within its historic range. The division and its conservation partners are still working to reduce threats to the least chub, to other spring residents, and to the spring habitats themselves. For more information and pictures, go to www.wildaboututah.org. Thanks to Chris Kelleher of Utah's Department of Natural Resources for his help in developing this Wild About Utah story. For Wild About Utah, I'm Holly Strand. Wild About Utah is a partnership of the Stokes Nature Center, the Bridgerland Audubon Society, and Utah Public Radio. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University, where students and faculty promote the sustainability of ecosystems and the communities that depend on them. Information at cnr.usu.edu. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, KCEU 89.7 Price, and KUSU FM HD1 91.5 Logan.